Daniel chapter 5, starting at verse 9. And in the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 304. 2 Samuel chapter 5, starting at verse 9 and reading through to verse 21. David then took up residence in the fortress of Zion and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishamah, Eliada, and Eliphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. This is the word of the Lord. I'd never been so close to giving somebody a round of applause after a Bible reading, getting those names. You did really well, Peter. And I'm not going to argue about pronunciation of any of them. Uh, Well done. Uh, This is the last... um, talk of three talks that we're doing just on David we're not trying to do a whole book of the Bible just looking at a few things of David and this last one next week I encourage you to be here Michael Madden's going to be preaching for us uh, encouraging us to speak to those people who knock on our door all dressed up with their suit and ties Uh, uh, if you get a Mormon at the door what do you say Michael's going to tell us next week how do you talk to a Mormon about Jesus particularly. Uh, So be here next week. But I'm going to pray now as we uh, look at a few more things about David and what he teaches us about our great God. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for uh, speaking to us. Thank you for uh, working in people like David so many years ago, but yet so inspirational that he was able to trust you in all situations. Uh, And you're a faithful God to him, that you gave him victory in all situations. So Lord, we just pray today that as we get a a real picture of David, that you'll again encourage us, not just about his life, but who you are and how you work in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was interesting this week, Hillary Clinton tweeted, to every little girl who dreams big, yes, you can be anything you want, 
even president, because now she's getting close to the presidency, you see. Now, a great statement, builds up hope, builds up excitement, and lots of younger girls particularly, that a girl, if they want to dream that, they can do it. But there's a few assumptions there, I did think, that maybe is Hillary Clinton the first woman ever to dream that and to get that close? Surely there must have been others whose dreams weren't fulfilled. It's funny, isn't it? Casting big dreams is uh, it's always exciting, it's always big. You can dream, you can be whatever you want to be. But are they always fulfilled? What pressure does it put on to make you perform well to achieve those dreams? I had a mate, or I have a mate, uh, who when he was at high school became a really good golfer. He was so good, in fact, he got uh, accepted into a golfing academy for those who are going on to professional golf. He said there was about, uh, out of all the people who applied to get into the academy of golf for, the, for teens, uh, only less than the top 1% got accepted into the academy, academy to become pro golfers. Then when he got there and started getting into it, they were quickly told, don't get your hopes up, because only less than 1% of those going to the academy would reach it to be a pro golfer. It's like, yes, you can have the dream, yes, you can want it as much as you want, but the reality is some of those dreams aren't quite going to get there for other reasons. Now, us as Christians, we do a similar thing. We look at people like David and go, you need to dream big. What's the sort of person do you want to be? Do you want to be a hero of the faith like David? You can do it. Just dream big, work hard, do everything well, and you'll get there. You can do it. But yet often we fail, we beat ourselves up about it, we can't do everything well. So what's the point? Where do we go from here? So there's lots of reasons why we should dream big and, and see the person that God wants us to be. But we've also got to realise it's not just our dreams that matter, but it's God's dreams. What's God's plan for your life? Where does he want you to end up, particularly in relationship with him and trusting him? So I think when we have a closer look at David, big dreams, big accomplishments, he actually comes to a place with God that's possibly better than what even he imagined. Let's have a closer look at David and see how that applies to our life. Because David, there was a lot of great expectations on David. We're going to cover a whole lot of chapters this morning, starting off with a bit of a summary of what we've looked at the past couple of weeks when we met David in 1 Samuel, when David was chosen by God to be his anointed one. That's kind of what anointed means. Uh, when Samuel, the prophet, went to went to get David, there was already Saul. Saul was king. Saul was God's chosen man. So Saul was the anointed one for God. Now anointed means in the Hebrew, because it's written in Hebrew in that time, has the same word as Messiah. To give you the weight of God's anointed means God's chosen one, means Messiah, even though here we might be calling like a little m, Messiah. But you get to feel the weight of it, the significance, their role to bring people to God because they're God's chosen men. In the Greek, so the New Testament's written in Greek, it's the same word as the Christ. The Christ. So you can get that in your mind. Wow, there's big expectation if you're anointed. So even we think of Jesus. Jesus is God's anointed one. He's God's man in a sense. But that's the big C Christ, big M Messiah. We'll get to him later. In the Old Testament, we see these uh, anointed ones, these little M Messiahs or little C Christ, if you like. First was Saul, but then Saul comes out of favour with God. Saul disobeys God, doesn't trust God, so God withdraws from him and says to Samuel the prophet, I want you to anoint another one, my chosen man, the next king. 
And so you can imagine Samuel goes to the family, sees the elder son, because he's got great expectations. This is God's chosen one, the anointed, the Messiah. And he goes past the elder sons who are tall and big and impressive, gets down to the younger son, the boy, the shepherd, smells like sheep. He's the one, and you can imagine Samuel thinking at that point with this great expectation, man, what is God thinking, picking you? But yet, you know, God's going to do amazing things in your life to turn you into this Messiah, this chosen one. So then we see David living up to those expectations. Amazing faith that he displayed. Amazing faith in hard times when he come uh, confronted by Goliath, but yet defeats Goliath. David has amazing faith through victory, you know, all the parades that, and glory and victories over other nations that he had in, in war and battles. And then when Saul was chasing him, Saul got jealous that God's favour was on David now. So Saul pursues him and chases him. And that sort of happens all the way through the end of 1 Samuel. Saul's jealous of David, tries to kill him. David's on the run. David has opportunities to kill Saul, but he doesn't. And the reason why he doesn't, he's this man trying to kill you. Surely you've got a right to retaliate, self-defence if nothing else. But he goes, no. Saul is God's anointed. I will not raise a hand against God's anointed, even though he had opportunities. Even David has this high view of the anointed one. But we get to the end of 1 Samuel, uh, and then we see Saul, his king. He gets surrounded by the Philistines. They've got him cornered. He's going to die. There's more honour in falling on your own sword than letting the Philistines kill you. So that's what he does. Falls on his sword. The Philistines continue to fight. They kill uh, his sons. And they kill the army, and that's the end of Saul, in a sense, by the time you get to 1 Samuel. David hears this. He asks for uh, leading from the Lord. He mourns over Saul, even though he's the guy that tried to kill him. He's still God's anointed one. He mourns over him, uh, but then God leads him to move into Judah to become king. So we're getting to 2 Samuel now, chapter 2. David's made king of Judah. He lives in a place called Hebron. Now, during that time, Saul's family are trying to cling on to the throne. They're sort of fighting him off, a couple of pretend kings, before we get to chapter 5, where David is king of Israel, the passage we had read for us. Great victories, just God's opening up the doors. Great faith that David has, always consulting God. And there's always this repeated theme of, and the Lord was with him. The Lord was with David, is opening up all these doors to now be king. And he was a good king. Achieved great victories, had great success. As king, he formed a massive army, export, expanded their boundaries. Uh, Israel, before David came along, was 10,000 square kilometres. When David pushed the boundaries out, built it up 10 times that to 100,000 square kilometres. As a great administrator, making trade routes to, to benefit all the towns in his area. He had great success. Uh, people wanted to follow him as king. People liked him. He got rid of all the idol worship and sacrifices. He unified the religion. They didn't have a temple at that time, but, but around the, the priests and the sacrificial system, bringing people to God. He did a good job there. And there's this repeated theme. The Lord was with him. He's just successful. He's a good king. There was great expectations, and he seemed to have reached those expectations. If, has he done everything well? It looks like he's done everything well to, to reach these sort of heights. And it's easy to preach, or it's easy to get the message, you've got to be more like David. 
If you want to be the person you want to be or you want to be the person God wants you to be, you've got to be more like David. Do everything well and God will do this sort of thing in your life. There's plenty of books, plenty of preachers that will do that. You need to do it well. But for everything David did, everything wasn't so well. Looking at the surface, it looked great. But you've got to realise God was with him doing it all. But for David himself... He just couldn't do everything well. He had his demons in his life. And when sin goes unchecked, then we know things are bound to fail. Because that's one version of your story. There's some other things going on behind the scenes that he doesn't uh, check with his sin. There's cracks starting to show. I find it interesting in the New Testament when the church is set up, when the Apostle Paul says, who to pick as your leaders, as your elders? Where does he go to to see if somebody's suitable for an elder? What's their home life like? Check at their home. What's going on behind the scenes? They could be you know, leaders of big companies, are very successful, but how are they at home? And this is where we look at, how's David at home? Uh, if you were here last week, you'd remember back in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, David married Saul's daughter, I called Michael, because I couldn't pronounce it any other way legitimately. I thought that was an Aussie way of saying it. Stirred up a lot of conversation during the week. How is it pronounced? Michael, Mikhail, Mikhail. It's like I couldn't think of a Russian spy marrying uh, David, so I'm sticking to Michael. But he married Michael. But she was uh, a woman of great character, she saved his life by uh, helping him escape, holding back the soldiers, but it ended up them being separated in their marriage. That was chapter 18. Get down to chapter 5 of 1 Samuel when David was on the run. Uh, he helped out some guys. He came across this lady, Abigail, a very uh, honourable sort of woman. Uh, when her husband died, David married her. We're also told in that, those verses where he married her, he also had another wife, Ahinoam. Uh, so we're not told anything about her, just she's another wife. So now David's got those two wives at once. Uh, we're told Michael married, uh, remarried. She's moved on as well. But then we get to chapter 3 in 2 Samuel. That's when David moves into Hebron. Uh, so Saul's dead. He has, becomes the king of Judah, if you like. So chapter 3, verses 2. And in Hebron, he takes on more wives. He married uh, Micah or as I like to say, Macca, because she must be Australian. Haggith, well, she must be um, from Scotland, surely. Uh, and Egla, um, maybe German. Anyway, he takes on three more wives. And he has sons and daughters, and at least sons and daughters, probably just the eldest sons and daughters of those wives that are named. So now he's got one, two, three, four, five, six wives. Soon after that, so now he's king and he's got some power, he heard finds out Michael, his first wife, is uh, married, but he wants her back again too, so he takes her back again. She returns home as a wife, but it just gets grander and grander. As he becomes king of Israel, gets the big, the big crown, he moves into Jerusalem, and then we're told in chapter 5 from verse 13, he takes more concubines, concubines and more wives, and there's more sons and daughters who are named. At this point, well, we're up to about eight wives seven or eight wives that are named more unnamed he's taking concubines which are basically girlfriends living girlfriends they're mine but i'm too tight to buy them a wedding ring so they're mine but i'll sleep with them i'll treat them like a wife they're in the house as well 
and he's having so many kids that either he's lost count or he can't remember all their names. They're just, they're just there. He just has more and more. So to this point, he's got at least eight wives. Uh, he has named 19 sons and one daughter. And they're just the ones born to the wives who are named. So the wives who are unnamed had more children. The concubines had more children. It's just more and more and more. Now, you've got to say in this sort of time, for kings and rulers, it was a matter of diplomacy. It was often accepted for a king to have more than one wife. So if you're in a neighbouring nation, a neighbouring king, uh, and you wanted to make peace with someone like David, it was common practice to offer your daughter as a wife to that king, to make peace as like a treaty. You go, well, surely you're not going to attack me as a country because your own wife is from here. Surely she'll stand up for us. So there's that sort of thing that's accepted in that day. And maybe that was a part of it, but not all of it. But that's not how God works, does it? He doesn't make treaties with other nations. God's very much a one-man, one-woman sort of God. And he's made that very clear in Genesis. So what's David doing? How can David be a husband to all these wives? How can David be a father to all these children? He can lead a kingdom and lead a kingdom well, but how can he rule his household with all this going on? See, in 1 Kings 1, we're given a hint that David wasn't doing a good job, that he let his kids do whatever they wanted, that he couldn't control them or didn't control them, and they were running muck, trying to do whatever they wanted. So he's got himself in trouble when sin has gone unchecked. It's just in the background. But what is going on here? See, on one hand, it's a practical issue. David's let his own household get out of order. But on the other hand, there's a big sin issue going on in his heart, isn't there? Deep down, it's the sin that is the cause of it. And how do we understand sin then? Because we all have different ideas of sin. I think the church has uh, not always helped in understanding what sin is, in getting the right idea. Some people think sin is a whole bunch of rules, and we see that in, like in Jesus' day with the Pharisees. They had over 600 rules. If you step over one of those rules, one of those boundaries, you're a sinner. Obey all the rules, and you're okay. But even to them, God said, or Jesus said, you know, your hearts are still rotten. It's because your actions are doing it. Other times the church has said, if you're inside the church, great, you're safe in God. If you're outside the church, you're a sinner. You should be condemned and cast out. Uh, and that justified the church then going and burning people. They thought were well, witches and things like that. We're okay, we're in the church, but it's okay to burn people. So there's lots of confusion. Today I think we're living in an era that says, if you're not doing anything that harms anybody else, so if you're not harming anybody else, it's okay. Keep doing what you're doing. Basically, keep it a secret, and if you're not harming anybody else, that's okay. And my deceitful heart likes that sort of definition, because as long as I can see, keep my life a secret, that's okay. I can keep doing whatever I want. God's not a part of it. I don't have to answer to God. I'm just answerable if anybody catches me out or if I affect anybody. That's a trap that we go into, but it doesn't work. Let me give you an example, because I think it's worth spending a minute on this. See, if a guy, if one of us uh, go for a drive out in the, on the road uh, and think, gee, you know, my car sits better on 120 than 100 and it's a 100 speed limit, even though God says, you know, we should obey our authorities and uh, submit to their leadership, the signs all say 100, I think it's better for me to go 120. And I go, I go to work and I get there, I get there early and it's all good. 
kind of think, well, you know, was that really sinning? I just fudged it a little bit. It was all right. It didn't impact anybody else. We're all happy. The next day, jump in your car. So it's all right. I can do 120. I've done it before. It's okay. But this day, you get pulled over by the police. The police pulls you over, hands you a fine. Man, I got busted. Is that sin? I did inconvenience the policeman. He had to pull me over and the traffic going around me. Inconvenience my wallet. I've got to pay a fine. That is an inconvenience. Is that sin? Yeah, it's sin on a bit of a smaller scale, maybe. Did the same thing as the day before. The third day, you go, look, I still think my car does better at 120. I do 120. This time, something goes wrong. You spin off the road, hit a power pole. You end up as a quadriplegic. You go, well, that was a sinning. I've inconvenienced the the medical people who had to come out and clean up the mess, all the staff that had to make me better, the years of rehabilitation, all the, the cost to the nation and all those things have happened that I've inconvenienced people. Now I've got to rely on a carer for the rest of my life. That's inconvenienced people. And everybody else would go... You know, what a rat bag, was speeding down the street, lost control, hit a power pole. It was doing the wrong thing. But you've got to think, which one was the worst sin? The guy who caused the most inconvenience or the guy that got away with it the first day? It's like sin kind of starts off very tame, very pleasant. We can justify it. But then before you know it, it starts grabbing hold, becomes habits, spins out of control, and then it turns into a mess. Because this is what, how it worked out for David. David says, you know, he's a man of God. He's not going to do anything wrong deliberately. But when you look at him, uh, the society says, as a king, you're allowed to take extra wise, good diplomacy for the nation. Why don't you do it? Everybody else is doing it. Hmm. It's one of the fringe benefits of being a king, I guess. Lots of wives. And I can imagine David having one wife and then going for the second wife. I'm sure he would realise, hey, I'm not sure whether this is a part of God's plan, God's creation, one man, one woman, but I'll take a second one and I'll just wait and see what God says. There's no lightning bolt coming down from heaven, so I guess it's okay to take a second wife. So then why not a third? No lightning bolt. And a fourth and a fifth. God's not striking me down at this point. It must be okay. And despite that, and this is how we can justify our sin, God's not stopping me from doing it. If God's not stopping me from doing it, it must be okay. In fact, for David, he gets to this point, and God's still prospering him. David's still getting more victories, more glory. God's blessing him. It must be okay. Sixth wife, seventh wife, lost count. Should we have a concubine? You know, these weddings, these wedding rings, it's costing a lot to marry all these women. If I just call them into my house as my girlfriend, my living girlfriend, is that okay? Has one concubine, looks at God, everything's going okay. Another one, another, another. Before he knows it, he's lost count how many concubines he's got. But see, it's interesting, I find, that the text, whoever's writing this up, doesn't actually point the finger at David at this point. It doesn't say, look, you've actually done wrong here. You've actually departed from God's ways. It sort of stays silent. It just sort of drops in these few verses here and here that he's got more wives, more children. Actually, we've given up writing names. They're just more wives, more children. It's just happening in the background. And that's where a lot of people uh, who claim to be Christians or Mormons uh, claim that it's okay to have multiple wives because it's not condemned. But actually, when you look at 
when these occurrences happen, it never ends well. It always ends in a mess. But when you see this happening then, and then you read the next chapter, when it talks about David on top of his um, palace, looking down, sees a woman bathing, uh, a wife of another man, uh, he says, you know, I've got every woman that I've wanted, I've got concubines or married them or not, the girlfriends, she looks all right. We just should be absolutely not surprised when he calls her over and sleeps with her. We shouldn't be surprised. We've known the story. David's got this thing with women, whatever he seems to want, he seems to get, and he can't control that. So when he sees another man's wife, he takes her, but then you see this sin, you know, you're speeding the little bit, don't get caught, you're speeding a bit more, and you might get pulled over by the cops, speed a bit more, and then the, you have the crash. Well, this is happening with David. He's done it before. He hasn't been checked on it, but now starting to crash. She falls pregnant. David has to arrange the murder of her husband because he's been sprung. He then calls her into his house. He marries her. And you can imagine somebody being raped, or at least seduced, by another man. He then kills her husband. Then she's forced to marry him. This day and age, we'd be all in an uproar. David gets away with it, calls her in and marries her. <clears throat> it should be a shock this is a man of God. This is the anointed one. This is the Messiah or the Christ, little M Messiah, little C Christ. It should shock us, but when we see these hints along the way, it's just like we can see this sin is getting under, out of control. But then we see God has had enough. He does call him on it. In 2 Samuel 12, we see the prophet Nathaniel pulls him up and says, you've done wrong David confesses, but it's too late. God says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. David, you've made your own bed. I'm not going to strike you down with a lightning bolt, but your family's a mess because of what you've done. Now, the family are going to bring calamity on you. The family are going to bring you down. That's what ends up happening. Uh, quick skim over the next 15 chapters or so. I encourage you to read all these chapters at home. It's a bit of a days of the lives, days of your life sort of story. But we see David's son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar, chapter 13. Amnon is then killed by his brother Absalom because he hates what he did. But then Absalom thinks, well, yeah, I can do a better job running this family. So he tries to kill his dad David and take the throne. Then David's forced to get his men to kill his own son Absalom. Another son, Adonijah, leads a coup to take his father's crown, tries to do it deceitfully. Before David's on his deathbed, when we get into 1 Kings, and he makes Solomon the next king in secret, basically in hiding. See, David's sin of wives and more wives, you can say, well, where is it in the Ten Commandments that we're told not to have more wives? Well, it's not in the Ten Commandments. But there's lots of things we know. Sin is not just about rules, but it's about a relationship with God. And if we're made in the image of God, we're his children, it's easy to know, is this within God's character? Because that's basically what Ten Commandments are. God's saying, this is my character. Live like that. Showing us in ten easy steps. But it's much bigger than that, isn't it? How do we live in God's character? For David, he had wives and girlfriends before and seemed like it was no harm, so he just kept on going till it spun out of control. Sin looked minor, but now it's turned into a major thing with repercussions. 
See, it's easy to wave the finger at David and go, David, you shouldn't have done that. You would have been an even greater king because it's at this point where everything seems to go downhill for David and his rulership. But in fact, we've all done it. We've all fallen into the trap with sin, trying to justify it or saying, look, it's just a little bit and you get away with it and you think that must be all right. And then it gets bigger and bigger. You go, oh, this is, this is okay. I can keep going back there. We've all been prone to lying. Yeah, you lie once just to get yourself out of trouble and, oh, that worked. I can lie again. That makes me look better than other people. And your lies are all of a sudden taking over your conversation. <clears throat> Whether it's cheating, yeah, you cheat on your tax report. You go, oh, yeah, you know, I'm sure I, cl- I bought this and this or about this much. Uh, the tax man didn't come and pull me up on it. I can do a bit more next time and a bit more next time. We're cheating on other things as well. With our lust, you know, we get a glimpse of something we shouldn't. We get a glimpse of porn, but instead of putting that dying to that, we remember, oh, where was that again? We go back to it. And before we know it, we're treading the same trail, going back to it and back to it and back to it. Got away with it before, but now spinning out of control. Even when we're dating, Dating before marriage, we go, look, you know, we can do these things as partners, even though we know in our hearts God wants us to save ourselves in purity for marriage. We go, we've done it before. We'll only do it once, but then it's never just once. We got away with it. We'll keep going back and back and back. And none of it pleases God. And we justify it by saying, well, it's not hurting anyone else. That's our definition of sin. But God says, enough's enough. You're not living my way. Before we know it, our sin's spiralling out of control. See, Israel looked to David. He was the anointed one. He was going to be their leader, the one that's going to restore them to God. And he did do it at a national level. But he failed as their Messiah, as their anointed one. Who is your Messiah? See, who is the one that is going to bring you to God? David failed. Still the anointed one, a little M Messiah. Who's your big M Messiah? See, there was David failed as the Messiah, but he also gives us a glimpse of the big M Messiah, what to look out for. You know, another one that was going to be born in Bethlehem. Remember, Bethlehem's a bit of a nowheresville, so a nobody from nowheresville is going to be born there. This one's not going to be just chosen by God, like David, but he's going to be sent by God in Jesus. It's God himself coming. He's anointed when God said, this is my son whom I love. Jesus is God himself coming to restore that relationship. He's coming to bring us to the Father God. He was also a son of Adam. So he was a sinner, uh, not a sinner, but he uh, lived in a world of sin. He had a body uh, that, that was prone to that. It was tempted in every way. Yet being God and being faithful to God was able to say no to sin, live the perfect life in obedience. So he lived the life we've lived. But he's also the Messiah David couldn't be. And he achieved much more than David could achieve. He's much greater Messiah. See, where David claimed victory by shedding the blood of others, Jesus claimed victory by shedding his own blood. That's how he had victory. David's own sin led to his downfall. Jesus took the sins of others, took our sin for his death. He took the sins of others. David brought a nation to God. Jesus brings the nations to God, the whole world. David shows us what faith looks like. Jesus shows us what faith feels like. Because Jesus brings us into that relationship with God where David could not. 
And so here's the kicker. Where David failed as a father, Jesus brings us before the perfect father. That's what he does through the cross. Think about it. If you're one of David's kids living without the father's love, without his attention, I mean, there's just so many and he's so busy. What are the children to do? I mean, we've just got snippets before of some of the things they did. But when there's a, there's a pattern forming. So for Amnon, he rapes, uh, has incest, incest. But when you read the story, he didn't see it as wrong. He didn't see it as a sin and tries to justify it. Absalom murders his brother for what he did. He doesn't see it as sin or wrong and he tries to justify it. Two different sons try to take David's crown by force. Now, you can imagine if they're getting up to their own, whatever they wanted as their own kin, kids, can you imagine what they'd do if they become king? They wouldn't have to submit to anybody. They could just do whatever they want. But see, we we'll look at these characters and go, that's us. When we haven't got that relationship with God, when we've run far from God, that's what we do. We try and justify our actions. That's not really sin. You know, and we justify it in our own minds. It's not hurting anybody or for whatever reason. <clears throat> we try and justify it as not being wrong or sin. When we're like the sons who try and overthrow their father to take the crown, we go, God, I don't like living under your authority. Actually, I think I'd like to rule my own life. I'd like to take that crown and be my own ruler. Thank you very much. We do that as well with our father, God. We run from him, justify our own lives and even try and take the rulership from him. But then when Jesus comes, he shows us what the father is really like. That he's not distant, that he hasn't got time for us and we're just a number, but he knows us intimately and personally. We see it no more in the story of the prodigal son when Jesus tells that in Luke 15. <clears throat> uh, you may know the story, the father's got two sons. One of the sons basically says, I don't want to live under your rules. I want to live my way. So I'd, I'd have my inheritance, thank you, and leave. Basically telling his father, I wish you were dead because you have no part in my life. Take me what I, give me what I'm entitled to. I'm going to live it my way. I can do a better job. He does it, blows all his money, lives life the way he wants, sin spiralling out of control, uh, blows up in his face <clears throat> and realise if he comes home to his dad, even if he becomes a servant, because there's no way he'd become a child in his dad's house, even if I become a servant in my dad's house, I'd be better off than where I am now. And when he runs home, uh, walks home, he's reciting his uh, apology, his repentance. But then, you know, the actions of the father. The father, who should kick him out and chase him away because he's being severely insulted, sees him from a long way off, we're told. And then he runs to him. The father runs to the child, the one that's abused, the one that's uh, gone and did his own thing. Hugs him and kisses him. A great sign of affection from the father to the rebel son. He even says, you know, get the ring, get the sandals, get the robe. All those things are for family members or important members. Servants don't have those things. It's a family signet ring and his family members or the wealthy members have <clears throat> in the household have, have sandals and the robes for special people. And then he says, kill the fatted calf, the one reserved for only special people because my son's come home. He's welcomed him home. So the father's there reaching out with love saying, I know you've sinned, I know you've messed up, but I just want you home with me. I want you close to me in my arms. 
This is not just the God of the New Testament that Jesus is talking about. It's also the God of the Old Testament. When David gets exposed, when his sin's exposed with Bathsheba, when Nathan said, look, I know what you've done. For that, your, your household's going to be a mess. <clears throat> but in that process, in 2 Samuel 12, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He finally concedes all those things that he's done leading up. He says, I have sinned against God. I can see it now. And there's an apology uh, as a part of that. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. God's not going to push him away, but he's still going to hold him close. And that's what makes David who he is. Yes, he's remembered as a great king, great victories, be like David. But not even David could hold that together. The great expectations. He couldn't hold it all together. But God says, that's okay. Because you're still one of my children. I still want to hold you close. And that's what God says of us. He says, I know you're trying, but I know you've messed up. I know you've justified these little sins. <clears throat> Some have turned into big sins and addictions. But he's saying, come close to me. Come back into my arms. Back into relationship. That we come with repentant hearts and apology and he will accept us. And that's the life God wants us to have. A life in relationship with him. Externally, you could do anything you want. But with God, that's where he wants you to be. A greater place that David could ever achieve by himself. It's when you experience a father's love then. That's when you realise you don't need all this other stuff. The lying, the cheating, the lust. I don't need that. Because I've got an amazing love from the creator God that he's holding me close. It doesn't matter if I fail. Because he's always going to be there for me, holding me close. And Jesus comes and he says, look, I can take your sin. Just hand it to me. And he takes it to the cross, sheds his own blood in your place and dies the death we deserve. <clears throat> and then we know we're restored. We're one of his children, dearly loved. That we come into the arms of the Father because of what Jesus did. I'm going to pray now, and it's an opportunity to do this today. To say, God, I know I've messed up. I know I'm still messing up. But I know that Jesus came to take that burden from me. I know that you're waiting there with open arms. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper where we remember what Jesus did, shedding his blood, giving up his body for us. But for now, let's come before him with open and honest hearts and hand that over to him. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you that you are a great and mighty God, creator of the universe, awesome and holy. We are not worthy to be in your presence, Lord, you know our hearts, you know what we do. We try and justify our sin, we try and justify not living your ways, which must break your heart. Lord, we try and justify it in our own minds, that it's okay, it's not hurting anyone. We've developed habits and routines that don't give you glory. Lord, even for the things we hide in our hearts, Lord, we know you can see it and we can't justify it. Lord, thank you that you're not a distant God, that you're so holy that you, you don't come and invite us to you, but through your Son, you sent your Son to us, a big M Messiah, a big, M, a big C Christ, your anointed one, <clears throat> to come and restore us, to take our sins. 
Jesus, the Holy One, took our sin and gave us his holiness so that we can come before you. Thank you for the image of that father who runs to his children with open arms, with hugs and kisses and holds his son close, welcomes him into the family. Lord, we know we don't deserve that. But Lord, we pray that in the silence now that as we hand our sin to Jesus, looking for restoration, looking to be welcomed into your family, Lord, we know you You're true to your word and you're faithful and you are waiting with open arms. So Lord, in our own hearts and minds, as we think about those things, as we hand them over to what Jesus did on the cross for us, that he paid for those things. Lord, with sad hearts, we come to you to be warmed, to be revitalised, that we might have life in you in a true relationship with you. Lord, we know we can't live up to your standards, but Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace is so abounding that you cover our sin and welcome us home. Lord, please help us to uh, rejoice in that fact, now and forever. Amen.